0: Did you know that the nature of our God is that he is a good God? I remember I had gotten saved. Um, I started hearing the gospel about the time I was 16. I um, I went to a Baptist church for like 10 months before it made sense to me. If you can imagine that. It's like, how complicated is the gospel? It's like, Simple. I don't know why it took me so long to comprehend that salvation is by grace, that it's the gift of God. You know, religion messes a lot of things up, and it becomes complicated. And after I got saved, wow, like I got saved Tuesday morning um, at a youth camp in 1992 up in Washington State, and I I picked up and started reading the Bible for the first time um, that day. And I've not been able to put the book down ever since. And I don't remember anybody having to follow up on me after I got saved. Now, I needed to be discipled. I needed to be mentored. But nobody ever had to say, you know, we've been missing you at church. Would you like to come? In fact, quite the opposite. You had to, you had to get rid of me. I remember when I was... Um, I got involved in our church's ministry like like immediately after getting saved. I, I did everything that I could do. And it, it wasn't some kind of weird, this is my duty, you know, Christians need to. I just thought God would let me be part of what he's doing. And I remember when I was given a key to the church because, you know, we did bus routes and other stuff, and I, I wanted to come early and clean up the church. And I remember in the middle of the week, I, I was driving by the church after school one day or something, and I just I took the key, and I opened up, and I went and sat down in the front row, and I just sat there and cried. And I thought, Lord, what could be better than this? What could be better than salvation, having a church, serving God? And then sometime after that, I remember hearing this verse out of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Whoo, that was a scary verse. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I remember hearing a sermon. There, there's a couple of sermons, a couple of truths that have absolutely transformed my life. And one of them was this idea that I'm supposed to say, okay, Lord, anything, anytime, anywhere, any place, I am yours, whatever you want me to be. I don't care about my future. I don't care about my dreams, my plans. And I had plenty of them, trust me. And when God said, I, I just, I want you to die. And I want you to trust me with your life. And I want you to have no conditions on anything at all. Just, Lord, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to be. And you know what hindered me from praying that prayer for a while? Africa. Like in the back of my mind, I thought surrendering is equivalent to being sent to some remote tribe in Africa. It's funny, uh, a couple of years ago, I made my first trip to Africa. And when I got there, I'm like, well, Lord, this isn't quite as bad as I thought it was going to be, you know. Although, I I mean, I've been in many places of the world, I've eaten a lot of food, and I've pretty much enjoyed everything I ate until I got to Africa. Um, My worst fears did come true when they cooked uh, caterpillars for dinner one evening, and they fried them, and I thought, hey, you throw anything in oil, fry that puppy up, put some salt in it, crunch it, drink water. Oh, it's got to be good. Well... So I picked up three caterpillars about that long, about as thick as my thumb. And I just popped all three in my mouth, hoping it would crunch. It did not crunch. It was like chewing a rubber eraser. And I was like, oh, this is taking way longer than I thought it was. This is in my mouth way too long. Um, I did survive the caterpillars. I was the first born-again Christian in my family, um, and as you can understand, there's a, there's a lot that goes with that, a lot of, lot of trouble at home, a lot of trouble with my friends at school. Um, everyone wasn't excited as, as this salvation as I was, and I mean, when I got saved, I just naturally thought this is the best news ever. Everybody's going to be so excited when I tell them I found the truth of salvation, and I took it everywhere. I mean... Uh, every person in my high school, I went to a public high school. I witnessed to everybody. I went to work. I witnessed to everybody. And, uh, you know, some, uh, a lot of people rejected it. A lot of people got saved. A lot of people believed it. But I surrendered my life to the Lord. I, I do remember getting that Romans 12 moment. And that journey has been nothing like I thought it would be. And there have been mountaintops, there have been valleys. There have been incredible victories. There have been unbelievable defeats. There's been highs. There's been lows. There's been laughter. There's been tears. There's been moments of illumination and understanding. There's been moments of, God, I don't even know what you're doing or what this means. But I can tell you, 30 years later, through this entire journey, he has been so, so good. I wouldn't trade a minute of it. I thank the Lord. And I just, I want you to know that when we talk about what we're talking about now missions, you're gonna to have to let go of everything to do this. No partial sacrifices accepted. The word sacrifice means death, right? So you didn't give a half animal, like half alive, half dead, like the animal was all the way dead or it wasn't a sacrifice. And the reason most Christians don't ever experience The blessing and the power of God is because God doesn't consecrate anything that's not fully offered to him. If you're not fully offered to God, he doesn't consecrate you. You understand that discipleship is not the process that you go through to finally offer your life to God. Offering your life to God is where discipleship begins. If any man come after me, let him hate his father, mother, brother, sister, house, lands, his own life. Because if you don't take up your cross, which is death, and follow him, you can't be a disciple. Uh, and a disciple is an all or nothing. This is, this is what God does. God's like, you're either all in or you're all out. I, I don't take anything on the fence. And for too long, too many Christians have tried to give. Lord, I've given you something. Lord, I, I've given you a worthy portion. Lord, I've given you 99%. Do you understand That if you have offered God 99% of who and what you are, you're as much a rebel as the person who gave nothing because you have made up your mind about what God gets and what God doesn't get. And guess what he asked for? He asked for everything. That's it. God asks you nothing more than everything. And once you settle that, the Christian life is really easy from there. And uh, those who have gone that direction, there's no regrets to that. He is a good God. You don't offer yourself to God and God goes, ha I finally got you, and I'm going to torture you. No, he's he's a good God with a great plan. All right, could you please uh, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter number
1: 10? Luke chapter number
0: 10 and Acts 13. The title of the message tonight is Missions is Teams. Missions is Teams. And I want to share with you another reason that our current model of missions in the independent Baptist world has been doomed to fail because we have ignored this principle that missions is teams. Luke chapter number 10, verse number 1. It says, after these things, the Lord appeared, appointed, other 70 also, and sent them, two and two, before his face into every city and place whither himself was, would come. How did Jesus send out the 70? Two and two. He didn't send anybody alone. Now go to Acts chapter number 13.
1: Acts chapter number 13, verse number 1.
0: Now, there were in the church that was at Antioch <coughs> certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And I, I find this amazing because this was the leadership, uh, what you might call the elders, the pastors of that particular church. And you'll find that's how God typically designed churches to be, was teams. It said, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, And from thence, they sailed to Cyprus, and when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had also John to their minister. So this, as we begin to study Paul's missionary journeys, we learn that missions is journeys, and what do we also learn right here at the beginning? God sent them forth in teams. So I want to talk about teams in missions tonight and what I think. That might look like as we look at the scripture. Father, thank you for tonight, and thank you for this uh, kind church family that is uh, assembled here tonight again um, uh, to hear teaching. And Lord, I pray that many members of this body may recognize that they have been the missing component of many missions teams around the world. And I pray that each one of us will see the part we could play when it comes to evangelizing the world. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Teams. One of the things that you're going to find, and I'm going to establish and prove this to you in the scripture tonight, is that there is almost no circumstance where you find anybody ministering alone. There are rare occasions where that did happen. We find uh, Philip was by himself, it appears, when he went down to the Ethiopian eunuch. All right, so now and again, you will find where there were points of time, Paul was left alone at Athens while he sent his team to go back up into Thessalonica and into Macedonia. But God's primary model of missions and evangelism is at a minimum two by two. In fact, Jesus traveled with a team. Jesus himself called out 12 men. It says in Mark 3.14, he ordained 12 that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach. So as Jesus traveled around, he had 12 men that were with him. And then at different parts of time, he would send the 12 out, he would send the 70 out, and they would go on a mission and they would return back to him again and they would travel as a team. Um, It's very interesting because when you look historically at missions, missions was almost always with groups of missionaries, teams of missionaries. And in fact, you, you study like the China Inland Mission or some of these other things, they actually would have a base from where the, where the missionaries would collectively live, just different houses, and they would, uh, then they would go out on different missions and they would come back into their, their base. The independent Baptist model is a funny one because for, for many, many years, we have been anti-team, anti-team. And I'll, I'll give you an example of this. Um, if you were to go into a lot of churches and if you got a really mission-minded church and a mission-minded pastor, they'd say, we want to reach the entire world. And so you get a big map of the world. And then you say, Lord, give us a missionary that's going to Nigeria. Give us a missionary that's going to Zambia. Give us a missionary that's going to China. And the church would begin to put $100 a month to various missionaries around the world. And I remember at one point in, in Fiji, Uh, not really on purpose, but God gave us teams. Um, During the years that I was in Fiji, we had five different single women missionaries that came and served with us. At different points, we had different missionary families, and we were always better when we worked together at teams, but I would get criticized from that. And this, I remember one pastor specifically telling me, this is a waste of resources. You see, if the mirrors are already there, and we have another family working together with you, we're now doubling the resources in one area, and that's not a good use of our money. So we need one family to be there and one family to be there. But if you teamed them up together, that was considered by some a waste of resources. Or we already support a missionary in that country. Why would we support two? Like, as if, like, I mean, the Bible says, like, two are better than one, and a threefold cord is not easily broken, and Jesus did with teams, and Paul did with teams, and everybody did with teams, but why would we as independent Baptists do teams? So have you ever heard, and I'm just going to ask a question and see if you can answer it, have you ever heard people say the number one reason that missionaries have to leave the field? Has anybody ever heard it? The main reason missionaries can't take it on the field and they have to turn around and come home, what do you think it'd be? Loneliness for who? For them, mm -hmm. okay, loneliness, family, sorry, lack of help. Who typically gets gets blamed that they have to come off the field, the husband or the wife? The wife. What it's often been said is that the main reason missionaries can't go is because the missionary wife can't handle it. Well, let me talk to you a little bit about what it would be like for you to move to a third world or developing um, country. Right? We brought our suitcases home from Fiji this last week, and we have to rewash everything because the one dryer that the 30 people were using went kaput, and they're almost never found. So you have to, you have to hang your clothes on a clothesline in a tropical, humid country. Yeah. You know what happens to clothes? They never dry. Quite right. Where we lived in Fiji, oh, we, had, we had a lot of fun. We had a pond water that was piped into our house. Pond water, right? So we never drank the water that came through all the faucets in our house. Uh, One particular time, you know, my wife had to, no water was coming through the kitchen sink. And so she unscrewed the little thing to kind of clean it out. And some tadpoles came out of there. And then she screwed it back in. Um, I remember we finally had enough money one time. I told my wife, I'm going to buy you a good washing machine. I bought her a Whirlpool because it had a warranty on it. And so my wife loved her Whirlpool, but eventually when you have as many children as we do and use it, something went bad. So I took the washing machine down to the authorized Whirlpool dealer, and I said, this is under warranty. They said, yep, we can fix it. You can come back in eight weeks. And I said, eight weeks? Yeah, because they don't stock the parts for that. They have to special order it out of Japan, and whenever the next container is coming out of Japan, it would be there. So I've got I've got lots of pictures in Fiji of my wife hand-washing all of our clothes. One of my favorite ones is having three great big plastic tubs, one, two, three, you know, one for washing, one for the first rinse, one for the second rinse, and watching my kids play in it. And that was on purpose because the kids would play in there. They were the agitators, you know. They would be the one putting it around and then uh, coming home and watching my wife wring out the clothes and hang it up. You know, when you, when you get into uh, third world and developing countries, life is hard. And it's, it's not a complaint. It's just a fact. Like, life is harder. There's more steps to everything. Right? Um, you When you go grocery shopping, that's an all-day affair. You start in the morning, and you end at night. Because first you're going to go to a fresh food market, and then you're going to go to the butcher to get meat. Then you're going to go to the bread store to get bread. Then you're going to go to the American store to pick those few things that you're willing to pay a high price to get. And then you're going to go to a local supermarket. So five stores later, trying to find parking each time you go, you know, all that type of stuff. And you're getting rained on in between because you're in the tropics. My, my point is life itself is just hard. Right? Then you have children. How many of you moms have children? All right. Good. That was a good answer. How many of you moms have children? All right. And so now you're going to homeschool your kids. You're going to homeschool your kids. You're, you're going to live without many of the modern conveniences that you have. And that is a full-time job. That is a full-time job. But because the missionary goes to the field without a team, he now needs his wife to also be his teammate in the ministry. And I'll tell you, there, there is such pressure put on women who are moms and wives and homeschooling at home to try and do the work of the ministry on the side. And yet the greatest ministry that she has is right there at the home. So now the, the wife is trying to be the assistant pastor, missionary to him and trying to run all the women's things here and all the children's things there and trying to go home. And you know what? You, you, that, that's why it's not that the women can't take it. It's that the rest of the team's not there and she's trying to make up the part that should have been other people on the team, right? So we've doomed our families when we send them. Um, they often say that loneliness is an issue. Well, why did we send them alone? You, you understand what I'm saying? God knew what He was doing when he designed teams to be part of mission, so I want to share a little bit about this idea with teams and and I hope that you would um take your hat off to the women who would accompany their husbands to the ends of the world because i 'll tell you when I was in Fiji in the Pacific, um I was gone a lot because I would travel up into another island i'd travel up into another village i would and sometimes my wife would go with me and oh. I remember when Marissa was just a baby, and we took her up into the village of Barotu, and it was the first white baby they had ever seen. You know, so we had her in her little pack-and-play crib with a little mosquito net over the top, and she would be there and just villagers all around just looking at that white baby. I took my wife to the, to the village with me. She'd never been, and I said, now, my wife, my wife eats chicken and beef and potatoes and chicken and beef and potatoes. She has a good Midwestern diet, and here we are in the tropics, and you're in a village, and they're only serving stuff that they get out of the sea, out of the ocean, and bring it in. She don't eat any of that. So of course, I said, "Off we go to the village." So she stopped at the American store, and you know, oat and honey bars, and Snickers, and whatever else you can get. Yep. And then, uh, well, then my wife's like, um, "Where's the, uh, where's the restroom?" I'm like. It's right over there. And she goes up and she comes back. She goes, I can't use that. because It looked like an outhouse. So you open the door and there was nothing there but a hole. Okay, we call that the squatty potty, you know. And uh, everyone and their mother has missed the hole a lot all around there. And you're supposed to walk there and squat down? Well, my wife's like, you're going to find me some alternative plans here as to how we're going to do it. I won't tell you publicly the alternate plans, you know. But you you go and you live in a way that you know. Eventually, that became very normal to us to live that way. Um, But God didn't design us to go through those things alone and to carry that load alone. God designed teams to be able to do it. But then the practicality comes: How in the world do we do teams? Because for the longest time, we've sent a husband and a wife alone off to the furthest parts of the world and said. See you guys in four years when you get back. Let us know. And and money can't buy everything. Just so you know, you you can raise ten thousand or twenty thousand dollars a month, and money can't buy you what you need with the teams that God would send together. So as we study through the book of Acts, we'll find as you move along that on Paul's second missionary journey, he picked up Titus. By the way, do you see how let down Paul was when John Mark quit? Like they only made it through Cyprus. And then John, John Mark is like, man, th- this isn't what I was thinking. And he bails and goes back to Jerusalem. Now, John Mark later on in his life is going to become a great asset to the ministry. But when they're ready to go on the second missionary journey and Barnabas says, let's take Mark, Paul said, no, I'm not. I'm not going with Mark because you actually need the team. Like you need the team. It's, it's not just for decoration, to have the team there, there is a need for the team. And Paul said, "If we take this guy again and we rely on him, and he bails on us, it's going to hurt the work of the Lord." Second missionary journey: Titus is picked up, joins Paul and Silas. Uh, they pass through Lystra and Derby, and they pick up Timothy. And then when they get to Troas, they pick up Luke. So by the time they cross the Aegean Sea over into Macedonia, you'll have Paul, you'll have Silas. You have Titus, you have Luke, and you have Timothy. Can you, can you imagine going into a city with those five men? Wow. How many of you have more courage when you're with somebody else? Yeah. That's why when we go out soul winning, we always like to have somebody by our, our side. We just, there, there's two are better than one. And if you think that you magically become a missionary and you're just endued with boldness because you're now a missionary... Let me tell you, you just keep on being you wherever you go in the world. And there's some sort of strength and courage that you, and accountability, by the way, when you are with two. Aquila and Priscilla get saved at Corinth and join Paul's team. Apollos becomes part of the team because uh, Aquila, uh, Aquila and Priscilla influenced them at Ephesus. And then you find Aristarchus, Onisiphorus, Phoebe, and many, many more people. Now, all of these teams had a very important role that they played, and my goal at the end of the message is to um, uh, talk and workshop a little bit about uh, how you could be involved with missionary teams. Now, because missions was journeys, the real fear regarding young works being infected with false teachings was real. You see what happened at Corinth. You see the Gnosticism at Colossae. You see the Judaizers, um, if you will, at Galatia. And as we mentioned before, there was never a time that Paul stayed long enough to leave behind what we would consider a doctrinally sound church with a well-trained pastor. Because, you know, our model is four years of Bible college is the beginning point of being a well-qualified pastor. And, you know, Paul's into a second missionary journey by then. So really you were leaving young churches with young preachers with basic training. And Paul engaged in a church multiplication ministry that would require mentoring multiple churches at the same time using a team approach and journeys. So using journeys and a team approach, Paul was mentoring and pastor uh, mentoring multiple churches and multiple preachers at the same time Paul made multiple visits and with his team approach he was able to mitigate some of those circumstances and mentor churches Uh, you can just note this verse down in Acts 15 41 it says and he went through Syria and Cilicia confirming the churches so what did he do he'd already planted churches and now what's he doing He's going around and confirming those churches, which means establishing them. Um, So let's let's see how Paul used his team. So let's let's go first to 1 Thessalonians 2. We've alluded to some of this in earlier messages.
1: 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2. Verse 17, but we, brethren, being taken from you for a short
0: time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. So I just want you, when you read that verse, to think about what Paul's saying, how hard it was for him to leave Thessalonica when he did. Because it was really the persecution that pushed him on. And he said, we've been taken from you for a short time in presence, but not in heart. Our heart has never left you. We would have come to you again, but Satan hindered us. Now look at chapter three. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, We thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God and fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. I want you to see the level that Paul elevates Timothy. Timothy was not a water boy.
1: Like the the teams weren't,
0: I'm the big dude. And uh, I need you to carry my bag. I need you to get my passport. Like, I need you to go prepare the hotel in front of us. A lot of times, um, even we do have teams, it's one big shot treating everybody else like deacons. Like, just, just go carry water for us. But Paul said about Timothy, he's our brother. He's a minister of God. And he is a fellow laborer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who wrote the book of 1 Thessalonians? Can you read verse 1? Chapter 1, verse 1. Let's see who wrote the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians. Paul
1: and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians. So who wrote it? Paul
0: and Silvanus and Timotheus. I find that amazing. If, if you were to just scan through a lot of the epistles, you'll find oftentimes it says Paul and Timotheus, Paul and Sylvanus and Timotheus. I just want you to know that the way Paul looked at these men, he didn't look at them as his servants. He didn't look at them as junior members of the team. They were fellow ministers that he put on an equal level with him when it came to the work. Now, there's no doubt that Paul was the leader, by the way, of that group. And yeah, I just want you to see the way he treated them. And then he said um, in verse 2, verse 3, that no man should be moved by these afflictions for yourselves. Know that we were appointed thereunto. Um, So what's he worried about? He's worried that this young church is going to be sidelined by the tribulations that they're suffering. And he says, Timothy, I need you to go minister to them. Verse 6, but now when Timotheus came from you, Unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For if we now live, if ye stand fast in the Lord. So again, just I want you to see part of the ministry of the team. You can only be in one place at one time, but when you're a team, You can be in many places at the same time, right? And Paul was the apostle in this regards, and Paul had a responsibility, but now his team members were able to effectively, because Paul was obviously writing scripture, wasn't he? Paul was the one getting inspiration from God, but they were now able to take these letters to the churches, and they they weren't just a mailman that brought the letter and dropped it off. No, they dropped the letter off, And then they taught those letters, they preached those things, they mentored those people. And so Paul was now able to be in multiple places at one time because of his teams. Now go to Colossians chapter number four. Colossians chapter number four.
1: Verse number seven. All my
0: state shall Tychicus deliver unto you. Who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord? I see, I just love the words that Paul uses to describe his team. Whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. Please note, Paul's team was made up of members of more than one church. It wasn't just the team were all members of one church. It's very interesting. You'll see Paul, and notice it as we read some of this, when Paul talks about members of his mission team, he'll often say, so-and-so, who is one of you? So-and-so, who is from there? Like, where did uh, Timothy come from? Came from Derby. Where did Luke came from? He came from Troas. So you have different people being added to the team along the way. So that that must mean that it's okay for multiple Baptist churches to labor together in the work. I mean, shock, shock. I'm an independent Baptist. And I want to change the word independent to maybe like autonomous. Or, or whatever, because sometimes I think we're more independent than we are Baptists, like we, we thrive on the autonomy. But if I look through the Bible, I see multiple churches co-laboring together, still respecting the autonomy of the several churches. But those teams were actually, um, we went to Fiji, we had 22 people on our last mission trip, and we came from one, two, three, four, five. There are five different churches. People were together with us on that team. And I I led that team, but we were greatly enhanced by people from multiple churches that were on those um, teams. Teamwork might make the dream work. Now go to uh, verse nine with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They shall make known unto you all things which are done here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner saluted to you, and Marcus, hey, he's back again, and Marcus, sister, son to Barnabas, touching whom ye received commandments, if he come unto you, receive him, and Jesus, which is called justice, who are of the circumcision, these only are my fellow workers under the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me, Epaphras, who is one of you, well, there were two members of the church at Colossae on Paul's missionary team, Saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and them that are in Hierapolis, which means that Epaphras has been ministering to multiple churches. Luke, the beloved physician and Demas greet you. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nymphos and the church which is in his house. Notice the team, Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Marcus, Justus, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, that's eight. That's a good team. That's eight people that Paul mentions on his team. Now go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. All I want to establish you is that like, this is found all throughout the New Testament. This isn't just like an isolated case. This is actually the pattern of the New Testament. Second Timothy chapter number four, verse number nine. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Demas hath forsaken me. All right, Demas was mentioned positively in Colossae, but now he is forsaken, um, having loved this present world. And that, by, by the way, that happens. Um, I'll tell you what, if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, nothing about missions will be appealing to you. Uh, You will just whine and complain about everything because there is no place like home. All right, so Demas, something happened. He loved this present world. He's departed to Thessalonica, Cretans to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Tychicus have I left, have I sent to Ephesus. Notice where he's sending all these people someone's at Thessalonica, someone's at uh, Galatia, someone's at Dalmatia. He's sending Tychicus to Ephesus, the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee and the books, but especially the parchment. So he had his library at one place, he had his winter coat at another place, and he's saying, can you pick these things up and bring them along with you? Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works, and it Seems like Alexander at one point was actually a blessing, and he's changed, and now he's done evil. Of whom thou beware also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray, God, that it be not laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, um, notwithstanding, the Lord stood by me. Go down to verse 19. Uh, Salute Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left at my him sick. Do thy diligence to come before winter, um, Eubulus greeteth thee, and Pudens, and Linus, and Claudius, and all the brethren. All right, so we've got Timothy, Demas, Cretans, Titus, Luke, Mark, Tychicus, Carpus, Prisca, and Aquila, Onesiphorus, Erastus, and Trovimus. Hmm. That would be 13. We say Paul, the greatest apostle in the New Testament. God did more with the life of Paul than he did with anybody else. Uh, Paul had a dynamo team with him. No wonder Paul could do all that. No wonder he could cover that vast of an area, and he could he could disciple multiple churches at the same time. Why? Because he had an incredible team that was with him. Now go to Second Timothy chapter number one, verse sixteen. Different people have different giftings, and the giftings. Are useful when they help complete the mission, right you have a gifting that's different than my gifting, right and, and there, there are a number of giftings that are mentioned in uh, Romans uh, twelve, especially these giftings are there, and they they have reasons behind them. Let me just show you this one and tell you a few stories. Second Timothy 116 the Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain that would be his imprisonment. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. The Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. And in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. So what was the ministry of Onesiphorus? What was Paul doing in Rome? He was in prison. And Paul said, Onesiphorus wasn't ashamed of me, but he found me and he refreshed me. When I was in Ephesus, you, Paul will write uh, in another book of the Bible in Ephesus, he, he would say that there was a point at which he despaired even of life. So even though the ministry seemed to be going well, he was at a particular low point, despairing of life. And he said, you don't know how many things Onesiphorus ministered to me when I was at Ephesus. He said, Timothy, you know very well. So what was Onesiphorus' ministry? Paul was his ministry. He, he just had a very specific burden to just to minister to and lift the load of Paul. So maybe Onesiphorus wasn't a great preacher. Maybe he wasn't a great administer, administrator. But the Bible does talk about, you know, mercy being a gift. And to, and to be merciful, and he just had this ministry that I am going to minister to this man and make sure that he doesn't throw in the towel. He's in prison right now. He's being persecuted up in Ephesus, but I am going to keep that man going. You, you think that's a good part of the team? Paul will say one of the reasons I'm able to carry on is because God gave me a man like Onesiphorus, who understood and cared for my burden. Um, not too long ago, uh, we, we visited Zambia, and while we were in Zambia, oh, the, just the, the unusual doors that God opened for us there. By the way, that's the nature of God. Like God's like, I open unusual doors. That's the only way the gospel goes around the world. But when we were there, we met the generals of, Fiji's mil- of uh, Zambia's military, and through some conversations, they requested that we bring Bibles into the country and that if we would bring Bibles in— That they would let us go to their military bases and they would gather their soldiers together a thousand at a time and let us preach to them and give them Bibles. And then I met the chaplain general of the Zambian police force. There's 22,000 police officers in Zambia and he and I became friends. And he said, you know, there's, there's there's hardly Bibles in Zambia. And I said, what if I brought in Bibles for the police? I said, could we go to all your police stations, all your police posts, gather your police together, preach to them and give them a Bible each? He said, done. So I said, I'm going to come back with Bibles. I'm going to come back with Bibles. So the other missionary that was there, we started looking, and you know it was during COVID, and there was all these supply chain issues and all the Bible printing ministries in the states. They, they didn't have paper, they couldn't find shipping containers. We could, and I said, "I need to get Bibles there." So uh, another missionary friend of mine, we did something crazy, and uh, he went on Alibaba, um, which is like the Chinese Amazon and went to find a printer to see if we could print Bibles in China. Well, we found a company, and uh, they said that they could uh, print Bibles, and they had printed at some point King James Bibles in the past, and we had them send us a copy so we could go through and, and look at it. I mean, you know, is this really? And then, But I'm like, I don't have any money to buy Bibles. You know, we had a great price on the Bibles, by the way. Uh, We got them printed, and these are a leatherette Bible stitched. Because, you know, I thank God for all of our Bible printing ministries, but a lot of the Bibles that are printed in Bible printing ministries in the States are fall-apart Bibles. Like, once you get them, especially into harsh third-world conditions, the Bibles fall apart. And I've always thought, well, this is what we can get, and it's free. Um, So I I thank God for that. We've we've been blessed by them. But, man, it would be nice to get a little bit nicer quality Bible. I got these Bibles printed, leatherette. Stitched all of that in China, plastic wrapped in a box that was plastic wrapped, landed in Zambia for $3.85 a Bible, which is like next to nothing. So we figured we could fit 19,000 Bibles uh, in a container. So you do the math. I need like $70,000. Like, well, number one, I don't have that kind of money. I don't know people who have that kind of money, and I don't raise money. So I got a phone call from a friend when we got back from Zambia who is very interested in the trip. And he said, bro, how was the trip? And I said, we did this, we did this, we did that. And I said, we've got an opportunity to do this and that. And he said, bro, let me try to help find Bibles. So he had called around to Bible printing ministries. And guess what? We couldn't get any for like a year or a year and a half. And he said, I wish I knew a different way to get Bibles. And I said, well, I said, there is another way. I said, we were able to get them out of China but, of course, we have to pay for those. And he said, how much? And he said, all right, you order the Bibles. Let me raise the money. And he said, I'll take care of getting the, the money. You don't worry about it. I, I don't know what he did or how he got it, but he took care of raising all the money for the Bibles. There were no drugs involved. I can assure you of that. I, but, but that man was a businessman. Money is his thing. He knew how to make money. And uh, look, a, a lot of times... Um, People wish they had money, uh, but you wouldn't know what to do with it. You'd spend it all up, and there would be nothing left anyway. But there are some people who are very gifted not only to make money, but to manage what they make and to use it wisely. And through his own giving and what he raised up, we were able to get that container of Bibles. And I've got a request for Bibles in Pakistan. I am friends with a young Pakistani man who... Um, was kidnapped and beaten by, well, I'm just going to leave some of that because it's live, but let's just say he had bad things that were happening to him, ended up in the Philippines, uh, and got into a a Baptist Bible college in the Philippines, well-trained up, married there, and has gone back as a missionary to Pakistan. When I was in Dubai on a layover, to Zambia we had like 12 hours in Dubai and I'm like there's got to be a baptist there's got to be a christian somewhere in Dubai and I went hunting and guess what I found I found there are five filipino baptist churches in Dubai because you know where Filipinos go everywhere and I met a church that knew this guy in Pakistan because I wanted to make sure he's a real legitimate guy and it was this brother in uh, Pakistan, he saw that we were doing Bibles to Zambia, and he said, "Do you think you could get me a thousand Bibles?" And I'm like, "What language do you want them in? Is it like Urdu or Arabic? What you know? What is the language?" He said, "No, I want English King James Bibles." I said, "In Pakistan? Why?" And he said, "Well, I've I've gotten two local high schools with Muslim principals that are allowing me to teach English as a second language." in Pakistani high schools using the Bible as a textbook. You do realize, if you've if you watch the news lately, you realize that in Pakistan there was a bit of riots lately and they burned a bunch of churches and tore a bunch of churches down. And at the same time, there's an open door there. Okay, so for me, I don't have money. And, and um, I, I, I don't, my skill is teaching and preaching the word of God. Right. But, but I wonder if somebody could facilitate getting 1,000 Bibles to that person over there. Like, who's more important, me that preaches or someone who facilitates getting 1,000 Bibles into this brother in Pakistan for that ministry? Uh, teams. Let's think about teams. Um, I was talking, brother Michael, um, just happened to be chatting with him the other night, and, and we're talking about... Um, Uh, videos, making videos and doing things that can be put up on YouTube and Facebook. And he's like, ah, that's kind of what I do. I like do this and that and that or that. And I'm like, oh, you know what? Because I would like to have a gospel track because I realize that most people in the Western world won't read. When we did tracks in Zambia, it was a full sheet of paper in a threefold with nothing but print on the front and the back. And those Zambians who hardly read will sit there until they've read every word of it. You give an American a track, it's got to have color, it's got to have pictures, it's got to have glossy, it's got to have all this stuff, or they just trash it away. Well, most people in the Western world, you know what they will do? They'll watch a reel. Right? They'll, they'll watch a video. So we got to talking last night about, man, I'd like to be able to do like a, a gospel presentation that could just show up on people's Facebooks on whatever part of the world. And then I'd like it to be in different languages. Well, he's got skills in the video technology. And I'm telling you, there are more Muslims coming to the world today through this than any other means. Because you know what they'll do when they have all of their black garb on top of them and don't way see them under their phone. They're going Christianity, Bible. Jesus. The greatest awakening in the Muslim world in history is happening right now in our generation. Brother Matt Stallman tracked the, the history of Christianity and its influence in the Islamic world. And since Muhammad came along the scene, there has been virtually no movements of reaching the Islamic world and, and Muslims are coming. And one of the reasons is because they can now secretly, without anybody knowing on their phone, they find a way to do it. So we need people who are like geeks. Like geeks, if you're a geek, we finally found a ministry for you. Like not saying that that's what you are. I'm saying like we need nerdy people who who get down into technology because you know what? Baptists are pretty bad at this kind of stuff. You know, the stuff we put out like hokey. And it's like, "Oh, you know, we got to we got to put stuff out that people will look at. Um, I would be greatly aided in the mission If I had a techno guru who I could just say, you know what I would like? I would like this, this, and this, and I'd like it to do this, this, and that. And they say, leave it to me. And they go, do their nerdy stuff. And they come back and go, you like that? I'm like, well, that's cool. But can you tweak that, that, and that to do that? And they go disappear, and they come back, and they say, done. And they put tools in our hands. Like, I'm glad somebody made an airplane. Airplanes have aided missions greatly. Right? I get on that airplane. I go around the world. So that's part of the team. You understand what I'm saying? Um, what different roles are there to be played? Well, when we go, uh, what was Luke? Our um, doctors, are medics on mission teams essential? Mm, well, let me tell you, when you go into Africa, I don't go to Africa unless I have a medic with me. Because like when we left Lusaka and then we traveled to Mongu, you go 10 hours The first half is an okay road. The second half is the moon has landed on the earth. From there, the rest of the way to Mongu. I mean, you disappear in those craters. I'm like, how do the trucks even keep driving on this road? You get in an accident on that road, there's no ambulance coming for you, there's no medevac coming from you. We were a couple of hours maybe into our drive. And we looked up on the road, and it looked like there was roadkill, like an animal had been killed on the road. And we all got interested when we got close to it, only to find out it was a man. And this man had walked out on the road, got hit by a truck, and his body's just left there. It was hours before anybody came to uh, to pick up his body. If you get sick, you don't want to go to, to hospitals or clinics in most of these countries. If you get an injury, you want to know how to put your own... Um, what do you call that thing where it squeezes your leg to death? Tourniquet. You're to put on your own tourniquet. You have the have thingy. squeezy thingy. Call. You're going to put the squeezy thingy on. Um, I was in Zambia, and one of our pastors in Wenatchee, Pastor Nikita, um, he is an ER nurse. And so we went on this trip, and the guy has researched everything that can kill you in that part of the world. And he traveled with this kit around him. It was on his belt, and he had something for everything with him. And I'm like, I am glad. I'm not going to research anything. I'm taking my research with me. And we had these people saved out in Mongo, and I wanted to baptize them. And he said to me, Pastor, you cannot baptize in any of the rivers here. And I said, why? Why? And he said, well, there's this thing that could be there and there's this parasite that's there and this thing could kill you and that one could eat all your flesh up and do this type of stuff. So we looked around for pools. We looked for swimming pools. We looked for anything and we couldn't find anything. And the only thing we could do is to get into one of those little tributaries of the Zambezi River. And he said, pastor, you can't go there. And I said, look, these guys are willing to get baptized in that river. I'm going to baptize them in that river. You find a pill for me to take when I get out if anything happens. To me, Uh, you go into some parts of the world, and there are higher security risks in other countries. Um, One of the benefits that we've been at war as a country since 2001 is that there is a large amount of membership in our churches that have a military background. One of the benefits of a military background, having been in the Middle East and other countries, is that there is, a, there is a security awareness that a lot of our military people have that average Joe Blows like me don't have, right? Situational awareness. You know, like um, we were in a particular scenario when we were in Zambia, and it, there was actually a setup for a robbery that was being take, taking place, and I had a very important meeting that I was doing, and the guy on our team who was in charge of security, he because reco- we broke some of our protocols. Like, one of our protocols is, uh, if you're going to go to an ATM machine, one white person at a time, or your your, your battle buddy, your team. Ah, uh, we we're in this mall. and I was busy, and our whole team went and lined up. Right, so there is like 15 white people lined up at an ATM. And what does that do? Bing, 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 bing. So we're back up in our our cafeteria, and uh, the the guy who was doing our security, he noticed somebody there. He noticed somebody there, and he realized there was a setup for a robbery that was taking place. So he came over to me, and he said. Pastor, we need to go now. Now, I already know what that means because if there's ever a security issue, whoever's in security is in charge. And I told him, two minutes. And he's like, don't have two minutes. And I'm like, make two minutes because that was too important of a meeting. So he sweated things out. But when that two minutes was up, we already had a plan that if something like that was ever up, we had different people on the team. These people go that way. These people go that way. We meet up at the car park. And guess what? We avoided everything. They realized they had been found so people with security help us a lot now security people have to be reined in you know because then they want to go all ramble on you and i'm like no we're not we're not killing anybody here we just but i can tell you stories about people who i think may have died unnecessarily there were when when iraq first opened up There was a group of preachers who went in and they were taking the gospel, and there's some great works going on in Iraq right now, but they drove to an area they should not have driven through, and they just got sprayed by random bullets and were killed, and probably if there had been somebody on the team, maybe, that had more of a security background, you actually research a lot of those things. So before we go into any country, we research. We look at the political status of that country. We look at the religious climate of that country. We look at some of the social things. We look at the medical things. We, look at, we, we do a, um, an analysis of that country, and then we put our plans and protocols together. You know, some people are better at doing that than other people are. Like some people can do the research and put it together so that you're effective when you get there. Teams. This is what teams can do when they're, um, when they're together. Um, because missions is journeys, we need people for different missions at different times. Um, there are some very good friends of mine that God has given them um, an NGO. Do you know what an NGO is? NGO is a non-governmental organization, uh, an international aid agency. These are all biblical independent Baptists. They have got an international aid agency that has received recognition by the United Nations. So what that means is anywhere that the United Nations is recognized on countries, they can go into that country as an aid agency with UN recognition and set themselves up. And this has just happened in the last couple of years. They've already got several hundred acres and buildings in Ukraine. They are set up in Spain. They've just opened up in Jerusalem. You know how hard it is to do missionary work to get into some of those places in the world? And now missionaries can go in as aid workers in those countries where they can't get visas at other places. But guess what they do as an aid agency? They do legitimate aid, which means when there's a disaster that takes place, like in Ukraine right now, they're giving blankets, they're giving food, they're giving clothing, they're giving all kinds of stuff into that country so we actually need people at times of disaster to go in and actually be part of the aid that's giving because that is the vehicle that's getting missionaries into that country they've got a team of lawyers that are working with the uh, united nations and other places to make sure they're in legal compliance and we're now in parts of the world that it, it might be impossible to get in without that so there are other people who have those skills i don't have those skills but we need people that have those skills Media, tracks, Bible printing, medical, security, technology, um, orphanages, all kinds of other things that could play into that. So when we we come back now, practically back to teams. Um, One of the greatest open doors we had in Fiji over the last years was through the public school system. We started City Baptist Church. It was the last church we started before we came back to America. And by a miracle of God, we opened up on the campus of the University of the South Pacific. The University of the South Pacific is a university co-owned by 14 Pacific Island countries, Fiji, Nauru, Tuvalu, Samoa, Tonga, all these countries co-own it. And all of their students travel to Fiji, to the capital city of Suva to go to this university. There's 20,000 students there. So when we went to plant a church there, I'm like, how can I engage all these young people? I said, ah, we'll do a creation science um, seminar because the universities in Fiji are really just now starting to really push evolution. It's into the schools now, but it's still a religious country. Uh, you know. So we made little business cards, and it had a picture of a gorilla, and it says, is this your grandpa? And we would pass it out, and like, that would be our conversation starters with people. We had hundreds of people come to our creation science conference. But what happened from that is there was a series of things that took place. And to just give you the conclusion of all that, we were given permission by the Ministry of Education to take teams of creation scientists into every high school in Fiji. There's 178 high schools representing a couple of hundred thousand high school students. And we could take our teams into every high school they would come into an assembly and we would be given one hour. And we'd start with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Say to the students, is that a statement of religion or science? And they'd all go, religion. And I say, no, that's science. In the beginning, that's time. God created, that's energy. The heavens, that's space. And the earth, that's time. Time, energy, space, and matter are the only things you can study. That's what science is. Uh, But the Bible tells us origin, God, in the beginning, God. Evolution says in the beginning, nothing. So we both study time, energy, space, and matter, but where did it all begin? And then we we bring in scientists. Now, these are men and women who have um, scientific credentials, because guess what I do not have? I don't have scientific credentials. So when you speak into the world about creation and evolution, they say, oh, you just read the Bible. But when you bring people with uh, PhDs, when, you, when we bring in a man who, um, who uh, has the patent when he worked for Dow Chemical Corporation that made the foam insulation that's on the International Space Station, or you bring in a guy like Dr. Jerry Bergman, who has seven PhDs in advanced astrophysics, and he's, he's that one of the top ten most educated people in the world. And so I bring these scientists up and all the kids go, ooh. Now when Dr. Jerry Bergman speaks, you have no idea what he's saying at all. His brain is way too advanced. he just in the technological blah, 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 thing and the kids, And I, well, a round of applause. Now let me tell you what he said, because I can translate it into like kid English. We've been able to get in front of a couple hundred thousand students We were just in a couple of schools this last week when we were in Fiji. And to watch a principal stand up in front of all those kids and say, we don't believe the part of our curriculum that says we came from monkeys or gorillas. We believe what the Bible says here. We came from God. Our creation science team has developed so much credibility in Fiji that in July, they met with the prime minister of the country and they said, we have a request. We would like to develop curriculum for all the Fiji high schools that wherever evolution is taught in the curriculum, we would like to put the creation science right next to it as an addendum so kids can see both sides of it. And he said, granted, it's done. So we now have educators who are writing the curriculum that's going to go into all the high school students' curriculum. That's going to affect a whole generation. And guess what? Vanuatu wants it. And guess what? Papua New Guinea wants it. But guess what? I am not. I'm not a high school teacher. I'm not an educator. Like, I have an honorary bachelor's, okay? I don't even have an earned bachelor's. Did you not? I was preaching at a commencement for a Fiji Bible college, and they came and brought me a cap and a gown. I'm like, wow. I don't know whether that's a, an insult or a, an honor, you know? <laughs> honorary bachelor's, okay, you know? So there is room for educators. There is room for scientists. There's rooms for doctors. There's room for lawyers, if you can believe that. There's room for lawyers. There's room for security people. There's there's room for people who can teach children. There's room for orphanage. There's room for all kinds of doors could be open for gospel ministry if we realize the value of the teams that are right here in front of us. I was in a church recently, and I met a man. We were talking, and and I said, well, what do you do? And he says, I work for NASA. So, hmm. I said, "What do you do?" And he said, "I reposition satellites to avoid space junk." I'm like, hmm. What what other kind of things could you do with those satellites? And he said, "I can get you a phone signal anywhere on planet Earth." I said, "Can I have your phone number?" I said, "Why?" Well, I said, "I'm going to need you." I said because we're doing missions all over the world, and there's many places in the world we go where we can't get a phone signal to anyone. I mean, could you legitimately, if I went to a remote part of the world, and he basically kind of said, I can kind of hijack that satellite and give you a signal and communicate with you. And I said, you're in the house. I need you for missions. Do you know who we need for missions? Everybody. Like, like everybody. And I, I'm just telling you, we have not utilized the teams the right way. What we've done with missions is the, the, the missionaries, which are guys like me, we might, in a military, I, I mentioned this the other night, we might be like the commissioned officers, and we just send the commissioned officers to the field, and all the troops that are here, we say, we don't need you. We, do, we just need you to pray for us. We just need you to give. Pray, give, or, or go. Well, we do need you to pray. We do need you to give, but we also need you to be at God's disposals. What are your gifts? What did God say to Moses? What is this in thine hand? Now, you say, well, how does that all work? I I don't know. But I do know that if you took who you are and you started asking the Lord to help you understand what your gifting is, what is your gifting and what talents do you have? What gifting do you have and what talents do you have? There was a, a young man saved in our church in Wenatchee in January. And he is a diesel mechanic. A diesel mechanic. He's a very good diesel mechanic, like at the top of the food chain as far as diesel mechanics go. And he listened to a series of messages similar to this that I preach, and he came to me one day and he said, I think I know a way that I can get us into almost any country in the world where there's a port. I said, really? What, what do you mean? He says, well, I'm a diesel mechanic. And he said, I had a company. One of the things that we did is, you all know what Angie's List is? Okay. Well, there is something like Angie's List for diesel mechanics. So you get all of these container ships and all these big ships all around the world. Most of them are run by diesel engines. And when they pull into port, they've always got repairs to be done. And so there's this site that puts out so-and-so ship in Sudan, so-and-so ship in Omar, so, uh, Oman, so-and-so ship in Saudi Arabia, so-and-so ship in whatever there's a port. And he said, I can get on there and I can bid any job. I can bid any job. I can go and I can take five apprentices. He said, the apprentices don't need any qualifications, but they'll give me and my apprentices a work, whether that's 30 days or 15 days or 60 days, whatever the job is on that ship. And he said, the apprentices have to be with me on the boat in the day. When the work is done, we can go into the town. And he said, I can go to almost any country in the world. And then take a team of people with me and we can start doing recon work to see if there's open doors for the gospel there. You mean to say that a diesel mechanic could be a tool to opening a door to the world? Hey, did you know that some of you have actually got qualifications right now that you could apply for jobs in many parts of the world where the gospel is not gone yet? And like your job and your qualification could take you to many places in the world right now? I, I never thought about it that way.
1: Start thinking about it that way.
0: Like, like what, if you, what if you just said to yourself, Lord, do you want me part of the team? Now, God may never have you leave this town. Like, like, Bakersfield might be the spot that you stay. Like, God may not need you to leave this place and go somewhere else because this is still the world here, isn't it? This is still the world. So everybody in Bakersfield needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's not like if you don't go over somewhere else that you're, you're, you're not important to this whole team. Now I'll tell you what, a strong local church is a huge part of the team. But when you send your people out, you're not just rubber stamping them, sending them out, and sending, transferring their money every month. Like whoever your missionaries are that go out of your church, they're the tip of the spear for what work this church is doing. But I do think that every one of us should just say, okay, God, I thought because I'm not like a good preacher that I I can't be a missionary. But there are many more parts to that mission's team than just the mouth. The Bible says the body has eyes and it has ears and it has hands and it has all kinds of other things. There, Okay, I think I'll end there um, for tonight. Can we just take a couple minutes? Does, does, Does that make any sense at all? Doesn't that seem really cool and exciting to you as well? Okay, anybody have questions or comments that you'd like to um, make before we close off in prayer? Yes, ma'am. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. yes,
0: totally. Like that that, that's how the whole interworking things go. Because if I go on a team somewhere and I find out someone in your church has a skill that could be used on your team, I'm going to call your pastor and say, hey, can I use that guy over there to help me make a video or two? Absolutely. I think what should be done is that we're able to be part of teams in some of those ways. So my thought would be yes. Yes, sir. I have no idea. I, I have no idea. Um, I, I really haven't been in, in, in talks with mission boards. They've, they've all got things that they are doing. So um, I'm not sure where they would be on that. Good. anybody else? Yes, sir. Okay, right now the places I'm trying to reach, we just went to Fiji and came back. And we're going to go back to Fiji in, in a couple of months because there's a bunch of men and young men that, that want to evangelize the rest of the Fiji Islands and the Pacific. So we're going to be part of that. Um, I'm going to India, uh, three hours north of Chennai in a couple months because I've got 43 village pastors up there that were training. And so I got to go finish the training so that they can evangelize. We have an open door to go into Angola. Angola is just to the west of Zambia. So those are three spots that we're working right now. And I've got an invitation to go into Ukraine. So that's kind of the four areas right now. But I'm going to try to go to the whole world. But I need guys like you to pick a spot that we could help you get there as well.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Brothers and sisters, listen. There are so many open doors in the world right now. Like I'm telling you, there are so many open doors in the world right now. We are only short of laborers. That's it.
1: Okay, somebody else?
0: Sir? No, we usually don't travel as a group. Our our heart's desire is when we're in the States to travel as a group, but I take a number of my children with me on each mission trip that we do. So um, Tabby, um, she's been to Zambia twice. One time for three months, one time for two months. Sarah, she's been with me. We gone, went back to Fiji. Tabby's been to the Philippines. Marissa, uh, she left. Uh, she just went with me to Zambia. My son, Makai, has been to Zambia a couple of times. So, And uh, Michaela's been to Zambia as well. What was neat in our church in Wenatchee, um, the kids started getting a burden for sign language. So Michaela and Micaiah and a group in our church—they taught themselves sign language. So every every church service we had like 12 people, you know, flailing around. But we could never get any deaf people. We didn't. We never got a single deaf person to come to our church. Well, we took a mission trip to Zambia, and we found out that 8% of all Zambians are deaf because they have a high incidence of malaria, and the malaria oftentimes doesn't get treated when they're babies. They get high fevers, and their eardrums burst. So then I found my kids and a couple other kids from our church. They're all standing on the streets, and they're signing the gospel. to people on the streets, they actually went to a deaf school and preached the gospel in sign language there. So, Michaela, how old were you when, we, when you went to Zambia the first time? She was 13. Uh, that's almost 14. Kid languages. she's 13. Michaela, how old were you? 16. So I had a daughter, 13, and a son, 16. So we weren't taking just like adults. We were taking young people and, and they were busy communicating the gospel to people on the streets. Like get them involved in missions when they're, when they're young. Let them get a taste for it. So learn, learn sign language. That's a great need around the world. Yes, ma'am. Well, the only, the only place we've used it so far is Zambia and what was it? It was ASL. Yeah, ASL, which I'm like, Zambians do the same ASL as we did. It was pretty much the same, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. Where there was differences, they figured out how to uh, assign it to each other. Yeah. Okay. Anybody else? Is that your hand? Yeah. Hey, that's a very fair question. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Which one? <laughs> yeah.
0: Mm, that. That was done very intentionally, not accidentally. Like we went for that on purpose. And so our our family is not just a tag along. Our kids have never been just a tag along. We include them in what we're doing. We've got a whole lot of things coming up right now. And of course, uh, Marissa, Tabby, and Sarah, they're all over 20. All right, so I've got three daughters that are adults. Micaiah is 17, he'll be 18. In, in a few months, so like, I have adult children, and I mean, they're free in, in God's eyes to go and do what they want, so they're with us by choice right now, but we included our family. We didn't just tell our kids. like As God was moving, we would bring them in. We would pray about it. We worked on our family vision and our family mission together as a, as a family, so they don't feel like they are a tag-along. Um, for example, the messages I've been preaching, I talked to them You know, I have a couple pictures of slides I put up, and my kids that was my kids' idea. They said, Dad, you need more visuals for that, and they're not good. They're not enough. So all my kids this week are going to be helping me revamp these messages and putting better visuals up there to help people along because, you know, and I was talking with Micaiah, and he's taking notes. He said, I want to be able to explain this as good as you can explain it. This is what we do as a family. Ministry is a family. And, and, I, and, and that's why, and I give a lot of credit to my wife because my wife resisted the pressure to be the pastor's wife, which is to be like the de facto assistant pastor of the church. And she stayed the mother of my children and my wife more than anything else. And mom's like, you have a huge, you, a, a lot of women feel like I'm just not doing any ministry. You know, I feel so tied down at home. I'm like, they are your ministry. And if you do that long enough, then they get to this age, and they're like assets to the team. And, like, my kids right now are the greatest asset to our um, our team.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: Um, pray the prayer that David prayed in Psalm. He said, now, when I'm old and gray headed, forsake me not until I have shown thy power to this generation and to everyone that is to come. I would be praying with all my power. God, show me how to show your power to my grandchildren and to my great grandchildren. And it will be far more than what you say. It'll be what they see. So what I would be asking God is God, because a lot of times, um, Unfortunately, our senior citizens in our churches, we've just put them out to pastor, just, just sit down on the, chair, on, on the chair and just observe us as we do everything. But I think there's, there's far more for you to do than to observe. And if you say, God, I want to be in this because what I can do to my children and when God gives me grandchildren and when God gives me great-grandchildren, I will rehearse with them what my God has done. And I will bring them along to see with me what God is doing. So, I mean, that's a, a really small answer to that. Um, but you're, you're alive and living. And I would say, God, do it through me that they can see and not deny what God has done. Yeah. Thank you.
1: All right. Anybody else? Sir.
0: It depends if I can count this church or not. Like if I can count this one, I can increase it by one. I, you know, brother, that's a good question. Um, over the last two years, um, I have presented this. I think I got to count. You might be the seventh church that I have presented this to. I've I've had conversations with a lot of individuals, but as far as, this is risky. Like, like pastors, they're like, like Well, Corey, why don't you talk to me about it? And I'll decide what I talk to my church about. So, I mean, your pastor is absolutely insane for giving me as much liberty as he's given. But I tell pastors all the time, you have greatly underestimated the members of your church. You would find the members of your church would rise up to this if you would give them the chance to do so. So, you know what? I don't know um, per se, um, but I know that the number of people... And there, what is beautiful is that I have now been finding other people out there that I never knew before who are crazier than me, that, are, that are, are doing the types of things that we're talking about. You know, a lot of times I was theoretically looking, we're not doing what the Bible is doing. It's got to be a different way. And then I would bump into somebody who was doing it. So there's actually people springing up all over the place who are already doing it. I'm networking together with them as well. So I would say the number of people and in churches in, in our movement is growing exceedingly to this. And the more at the beginning, you have to be a bit of a lone wolf when you do it. You have to take the risks. But if somebody just takes a little bit of the risk, like once David went down and killed Goliath and cut off his head and he held the head up and looked at the guys and they're like, hey, let's, let's all go kill some Philistines. And they all jumped down and went and killed the rest of the Philistines. So you got to take a little bit of a risk. You gotta be okay to fail. I mean, that's I mean, that's part and parcel of it. Me, not God. I mean, God's not gonna fail, so I would say it's growing.
1: Yeah. But what does the first look like for the model uh for setting? What does that look
0: like for the Christian? So God works uniquely with each church. God works uniquely. So, so let's say, for example, this church, and I, I know your pastor's already on board and already been pushing in this uh, direction, but uh, but I would assume at some point, God, God himself will put some place on your heart. Like God will just say to this church, hey, and there's gonna be a first jump off into something and you're gonna go, you're gonna keep your eyes open, you're gonna pray, you're gonna come back and you're gonna assess. That's what we did. As a church in Wenatchee, we, we said, There was an open door to go down to Guadalajara, Mexico. So we prayed, we got a team together, we sent them down, we came back. And each time we do it, we learn. Each time we do it, we assess. Each time we look at that, we grow in that experience. And this is what I'm always doing. Paul said, There is a great door and an effectual set before me, and there are many adversaries. So what I am always looking for is the open door. Where is that open door? There's always an open door somewhere, and there's always a harvest to be had somewhere. And we'll talk about that tomorrow night on the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And Maybe get a little more practical.
1: All right, anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Specific careers, like you're saying, whatever your career is, there's an opportunity.
0: That's good. What do you think? Hey, my kids, you got a pin. What careers? My wife probably got some good opinions. I I would say I would pick a career. Okay, thank you. I know I want to go with that question now. I blanked for a minute, and I looked to my wife to help me out. (laughs) And she, no, 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 sign language does not work. She's already tried that. Mouthing things. She just has to look straight into my brain and hope that it gets there. I don't read lips well at all. Okay. I think That we should be training and raising our children to find, because what is a career? What
1: is a career? If you're not a Christian,
0: it's your identity. Your career is your identity if you're not a Christian. But if you're a Christian, it's just a means. That's it. It's not your identity. You ask somebody, what are you? I'm a doctor. What are you? We, we, our identity is in the thing that we do, but, but we, we are none of those things. So I would say we've made a big mistake because we've just followed the world where we have become career-oriented, where our goal is to be successful with our career. Why? We want to be successful with our career so that we can get a mortgage, so that we can go on two weeks vacation a year, so that we can have a decent retirement. And so that we can get old happily and die. And most people, they're just trying to stay alive until they die. That's it. And if I can make a little bit more money, I can be a little bit more comfortable until I die. And that's really what the average Western life is. How can I be comfortable and happy until I die? And then you finally get on your deathbed. and You're like, well, what was that all about? Okay. Our job is not to just stay alive until we die. Our job is to get the gospel to the world until we die. That's why we live. So we want to pick, in my idea, careers, um, ways of earning money that don't own us. What are some of the skill sets that you could develop where you can be mobile? Tradesmen. Tradesmen. You know, if you're a tradesman, you can go almost anywhere in the world. My young diesel mechanic was almost thrown a great job in Fiji by a company like, we need you here, would you come? And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. You're valuable in many parts of the world. What kind of a trade and a skill could you pick up and move anywhere, anytime that God said? That's what I would be looking for because all all I want, I want a trade that can supply my needs wherever I need to go so I'm at God's um, disposal. So I would be looking more for that, flexibility. Not where I get tied into a company where two weeks a year is all I get. But I, I would say any, anything you can get uh, in the medical field, like if you, can, if you can just do some good basically first aid, if you could get low-level medic, just things that you could do to protect yourself. Uh, my, my wife is a medic, and she's had no formal training, but she had a family in a third-world country. And so, I mean, that woman can keep you alive, all right. She has superglued many things that needed stitches. In uh... hmm? and look at the kids, they all look pretty
1: good for being in the third world most of their life.
0: Yeah. Right. Okay, Pastor, I think that's it. I'll hand it back over to you, unless you've got anything else
1: tonight.